My name is Chris King, and this is Documentary Photography Review, a podcast that showcases the work of documentary photographers from across the globe who have explored stories local to them. This week, we're speaking to Louis Bush, a photographer and writer who talked to us about his project in Canby Island here in the UK. Louis graduated from the London College of Communication not so long ago and carried out the project as part of his MA. A collection of stills and a multimedia piece were created for his project and can be seen on Lewis's website at lewisbush.com. Now this is our first ever podcast and the interview took place in the Royal Festival Hall here in London, which happened to be the quietest place we could get access to. We had to move a couple of times, unfortunately, as the background noise got too great. So you will hear a change in audio on occasion during the recording. We are looking for alternative quieter spaces, but this will take time for us to sort out. So please bear with us. So without further ado, here is our interview with Lewis Bush, with co-presenter Rebecca Enderby kicking things off. Enjoy. Well, thanks for joining us on early on a Sunday. So perhaps we could start by talking about your journey into photography um, and then kind of moving on into a bit about your work and stuff. But sure. yeah, tell us how you first got into it. Well, going back right to the beginning, my dad gave me an old camera of his and uh, I really quickly discovered, first I discovered we had a dark room at school, which was great, and then I discovered it was the one place you could go and hide if you didn't want to be found by any of the teachers. So whenever there was an assembly or anything like that that I didn't want to go to, I'd just sneak off there and spend a couple of hours there. So it was kind of um, a bit accidental and a bit pragmatic, but I pretty quickly got kind of hooked on um, going off and shooting and then the excitement of coming back and developing the films and uh, learning from, from my mistakes which were numerous um, so yeah it was, it was a gradual process really of uh, discovery and it just, it just built from there so yeah, I, um, you know I, I just carried on doing it as a hobby I went to university and it got more and more serious kind of year on year uh, to the point where I, I just suddenly thought, well, this is taking up so much of my time anyway. Why don't I just let it take up all my time? <laughs> so, and that's when I, I guess, became a photographer in inverted commas. You did history. <coughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I did history at the University of Warwick, which was a strange choice looking back. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it was kind of a situation of, um, I should go to university, but I'm not really sure what I should do. I'll just do the thing that... I seem to enjoy at school and seem to be vaguely qualified for. So again, a lot of the things that have happened in my life seem to have been quite kind of accidental. Uh, and that was another one. But it seems to have created a nice fusion in your, in your, for your photography, because a lot of your work has a kind of historical um, element to it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, I mean, at least in terms of uh, photojournalism and documentary photography, most, um, most photography most projects have a historical element. It's very difficult to go out looking for a project and not find some historical context to it. You know, whether it's about, um, yeah, that's true, yeah. you know, a current war or, you know, uh, a social problem. It's, it's often contextualised uh, through history. So, yeah, but I mean, it was, again, it was kind of an accident because after I finished university, I, I was very disillusioned with uh, academic history and I was like, well, this is something that doesn't really have any use to anyone uh, and I've just spent three years of my life on it and you know, I don't want to do that again. 
I'll do something that seems very practical and very useful, like photography. Mm -hmm. And uh, so initially it was like a rejection of history. And then it's quite weird that within a couple of years, uh, all these connections started to appear in my mind between mm. history and photography. Um, you know, very practical connections, but also very kind of uh, quite abstract connections. So, yeah, it's funny how things kind of come full circle in a way and yeah, uh, you yeah. end up back where you started almost. So just quickly then, thinking about, so you started off then using film, which, you know, now some people might just go straight into digital. So when did you, do you still use film? Um, yeah, I do. Um, it really, it varies. I mean, when I got into, into photography, it was just on the cusp of digital becoming mm. mainstream. So if you had loads of money, you could go out and buy a not particularly amazing digital camera or if you had no money film was still relatively cheap yeah. you could get a cheap film camera and so it was again pragmatic but then I got I got quite hooked on it I mean it's it's so quite a film this is yeah it's yeah. quite an exciting experience um so I still use it but it's very dependent on what I'm shooting and stuff like that um I'm just about to do a load of portraits at a museum in town I did I did these portraits about four years ago and mm -hmm. I'm revisiting them just the Sloan. Yeah, that's museum, right. Yeah. Um, the staff at this museum. Yeah. And it would be much, much, much easier to shoot it on digital. But um, I'm using film because it just gives the the museum is very beautiful and beautifully lit, and it just gives the light a kind of completely different feel in the photographs right. to use film. So, you know, it's it's choice dependent on what you're photographing, really. Yeah. Okay. So you sort of go between the two. Yeah. 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 Um, and so after university, you you then worked um, abroad, is that right? Yeah. With the UN? Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about that <coughs> and, and then how that's kind of fed into your photography, if at all? Or did you do <laughs> photography out there or...? Uh, yeah, so it was... I was in Geneva for a while. Um, it was... It sounds very exciting, but actually it was, in, it was an office job and it wasn't right. really that... It was interesting work and it was nice, again, with this feeling that history had been so pointless studying history being so pointless, it was nice to do something that I felt like it was, uh, it was beneficial in some way, mm -hmm. although that's debatable. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I carried on photographing while I was there, and, uh, but again, you know, I, I kind of realised that I wasn't really an office job kind of person, mm -hmm. and um, the thought of going into the same office and knowing where I'd be, that I'd be sitting at the same desk in six months' time just drove me mad, really. Mm -hmm. So um, that was another, I think the main way that affected my work was it made me realise that um, I probably couldn't hack it doing a normal job. Um, so, so it sort of solidified your passion for photography? And I think it just solidified my, my sense of, oh my God, I've got to get out of an office right, okay. uh, and find something I can <laughs> and do. And photography is the way to do and that. Photography was kind of the most obvious yeah. next step, you know, to look at that sort of potential career. But I mean, I didn't, although I quit this job and came back to the UK, I didn't think uh, straight away, oh, I'm going to, you know, become a professional photographer. I kind of looked around and I did a series of kind of slightly tedious uh, jobs to make ends meet. And then gradually photography just became more and more, yeah. obviously, the route to go. And at what point did you choose to do your documentary photography uh, masters? Um, quite soon after I got back, I think I thought... So I, I, I mean, one of the advantages of working in Geneva had been that it was quite well paid, but there wasn't really anything to spend the money on because right, Geneva okay. is quite a boring place. So um, I had some money, and I thought, well, 
what, sh what can I do with this? Yeah. There wasn't really enough to do anything particularly extravagant. So, I mean, it was, you know, a few thousand. So I thought, well, I'll save up some more and I'll, I'll do an MA because mm -hmm. that's what people do, right, when they're not really sure what to do with their lives. <laughs> um, but, and also I'd, I'd heard lots of good things about this course and I'd met some people who'd been on it. So and this was at the... The London, London College of Communication, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, just, it just seemed like a good... I mean, I kind of said to myself, well, I'll apply because I, I didn't really have any serious work to show them and I'll see what they say because they may just say no. And I got onto it and I thought, well, you know, take this as a sign and just do it. So, yeah. And how did you find it? Um, it kind of sounds ridiculous and evangelical, but it slightly changed my life, or at least definitely changed my way of looking at everything. Uh, you know, to look at the work I was interested in, the work I was doing in January of 2012, mm -hmm. and then to look at what I was interested in 12 months later, uh, to me, it's just like looking at a completely different person. Right. So for me, it was amazing. I know for other people, it's it's been not so great. Um, right, okay. I I guess it, I just it was lucky timing. I guess I just did it at the right time for me, and I I met loads of really interesting people and saw loads of interesting work, and it just all kind of clicked. Yeah. So. What What do you think it was that kind of changed the your life? Was it the um, was it just being being able to kind of spend like a year just just doing photography, looking at all this work, or did it kind of sort of take solidify your approach to photography? Um, it was a com whole combination of different things. I mean, it obviously changed um, changed my outlook on photography, uh, about how how I should be doing photography, mm. what I should be looking at, um, all those kind of things. I mean, when I began, I thought I wanted to be a photojournalist, and you know. And this Canvey project, which I think we're going to talk about later, yeah. is partly a reflection of that. And by the end, there was nothing I wanted to do less, you know. Oh, really? In a way, yeah. Um, like, I'd never describe myself as a photojournalist now. I don't know what I'd describe myself as. That was the difference. It went from being like, this is what I want to be, and I'm going to work towards it, to now being in this strange place where it's kind of like, um, you know, I don't know what I want to be or what I am. I'm just kind of, kind of enjoying the process. Yeah, of, that's uh, interesting. Making that's it work. Different to what you'd expect, isn't it? You'd expect to go in sort of not sure and then it's sort of honing in and that being. Yeah. But it opened it up for you. Yeah, I mean, you kind of expect you will merge with a little badge that says, I'm now a yeah. photojournalist <laughs> or a documentary yeah. photographer. And it's. Maybe for some people it is kind of like that, but for me it was, you know, completely the opposite. It, you know, like a lot of interesting things, it almost raised more questions doing this course for me about my own work and about uh, photography more broadly than it answered. I came away probably more confused, but in a good way. Yeah, um, yeah. It's quite difficult to explain the experience. It was, no, it was I just a very I I intense, uh, intense, interesting and tiring year. And I suppose that's what some people who didn't perhaps get on with the course, perhaps they wanted to come out knowing what they were. I think and they so. didn't. And yeah. that, that I think um, them. maybe maybe also I didn't have that much in the way of expectations. Mm. Uh, mm. I don't know. I think you know it was just a, it was just good timing really for me, um, and I think that's kind of critical. Like I mean, a lot of people I I know who um, who are thinking about doing things like MAs and stuff. You know, I kind of now tend to say, well, why now? Why why is this a good time? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I think more than anything else, that made made the difference for me. It was just lucky timing. Yeah, yeah. And so, do you think um, 
Had you not done that MI, you may have evolved differently as a photographer or stagnated? Or <coughs> um, I'm not sure I'd still be a photographer. Right. I don't know. It's so difficult to know what, how things, you know, there's the kind of two paths mm. branching off from the same point, and one of them is obviously very clear because it's the path I took, and the other one's very kind of hazy. I mean, I guess I probably would have uh, struggled around trying to make, make money from photography and doing projects that probably wouldn't have got much attention. Yeah, I think, um, I think I, I don't know, it's so difficult to know, isn't it? Who knows? But do you come up with a series of networks? Is that one of the things you perhaps think is important as your journey into sort of more professional photography? Is you meet people, then you have a connection, don't you? Because if you're, mm. when you sort of first start doing photography, a big part of it, I think, is kind of, you know, knowing, knowing people, and you know, making those connections. Yeah, um, I guess um, meeting people is good and bad in different ways. I mean, yeah, it was a big bonus. I mean, my course mates are amazing. Mm. Uh, you know, they're just such an incredibly varied, talented group of people. So that was incredible to meet all these people. That and we gelled instantly. That was the other bizarre thing. It's like thirty people. I don't get on with people generally um, you know I'm quite picky about my friends but it was like 30 people and we almost all got on instantly which I thought was kind of amazing yeah um, I mean there are disadvantages I find particularly in terms of writing about meeting people in your networks expanding is that like when I'm writing about uh, photographers work I find that if I know them I'm less it takes more effort to be completely honest about yeah. it yeah yeah. Whether that's positive or negative about their work, um, if you know someone, it's it's difficult not to just tread this very neutral, boring line about what they do. And so sometimes I think actually, if I really wanted to be more of a writer and less of a photographer, I'd just I'd go away and live on top of a mountain somewhere <laughs> and not talk to anyone, because. Um, but then what would you write about? Well, I'd have to come down, I guess, to go see <laughs> exhibitions. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, <laughs> you know, get books delivered, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's a weird thing. But it is, it's amazing. And it's nice also, London's a great place to be because there are so many photographers here and it's, it's a weird mixture of uh, this very kind of tight-knit community but also a very big community. Yeah, it so is big, yeah. But, but I think, again, it's, I think it's just kind of knowing where to, where to look because it is big, but you need to kind of, I think, first sort of get yeah. in there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so I suppose something doing like a master's would, would start to open that up. Yeah. And to know who to, to go to if you want some help editing or, or, yeah. or help where you might do an exhibition, things like that. Yeah, and I mean, um, yeah, it's useful because, you know, you know that such and such a friend knows whoever, a curator or an yeah. editor or yeah. another photographer that you want to talk to. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, you pull your resources. Um, to some extent, which is, and it's, you know, it's a kind of lonely uh, world being a photographer, even if you, you know, you work in a big city and your work involves working with people, it's still, you're, you're always kind of the slight outsider, yeah. slight kind of pariah, doesn't matter how, uh, with people have hired you to come and photograph something, you're always still slightly viewed with a sense of mild suspicion, <laughs> so, you know, it's nice to, to just say, go to the pub and hang out with Ten other people who know the feeling. Yeah, know. absolutely. Yeah. And you can uh, you can sit there and you know it's it's just you don't have to explain yourself almost. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the community I think is really important. Important. Yeah.
And so um, moving on to your personal projects, um, how do you initiate uh, a project? Um, I think they kind of initiate themselves. They just, I don't spend a lot of time sitting around thinking, what should I do next? Uh, they just tend to kind of emerge, not fully formed at all, but an idea will appear. And usually it's kind of obvious when it's an idea worth pursuing. So, I mean, I tend to have, I tend to just jot down ideas as I go along. So whenever one appears, I just stick it down, write it down, um, and usually let them kind of ferment for a while. Um, and often if I come back to an idea three months later, A, more ideas have appeared connected to it and B uh, if it's an, it really is an interesting idea then it'll still be interesting even after three months of thinking about it and not really doing anything to it so um, so it's quite a slow process I guess um, and then assuming it's something I want to carry on with I tend to I mean I tend to put quite a lot of emphasis on researching and writing before I begin shooting mm -hmm. um, Whereas I think a lot of photographers probably do the opposite, which is they write about what their work's about after they've made it. Um, actually, I mean, well, that's not true. I mean, I, I tend to keep writing through the process of photographing as well. So the two kind of occur in tandem. And I think the, the project idea develops, the photographic idea develops as the writing develops and the two kind of shape each other um, to some extent. So it's quite fluid. I don't really have like a, a process, like a kind of 10 stage plan to coming up with a photographic project. But, um, you know, they're always a reaction to something that I feel like I need to, to do some work about. It's never a case of, oh, you know, I've got a couple of months spare. Let's do a project for the fun of it. Although obviously it is fun. <laughs> but in that way, your, your projects are more kind of about the, long, the longer picture, aren't they? Because you were saying that you decided you didn't want to be a photojournalist because you're saying you sort of write something down and you wait for three months but in some sort of pod photography that wouldn't work because the story would be gone no definitely so you're definitely working very on projects that have a sort of really long shelf life as it were yeah I mean I'm interested in um, I suppose I'm interested in, in big and often kind of intangible quite intangible subjects mm. and those things don't tend to go away they tend to always yeah. be there yeah so I think even if I I try sometimes to wed these big themes to kind of current events. Okay. Um, like I did this project about history, uh, but I did it in the context of the European recession. Yeah. Um, but obviously sometimes I don't, sometimes that's not possible. And yeah, sometimes things move too quickly. So you maybe have an idea and it connects to some current event or current trend, but then by the time you get around to redeveloping really it, that thing's not really, uh, relevant and fresh enough to be mm. worth pursuing into a full-scale project so so those projects do you just sort of say oh, okay well yeah you know you just say well gone. it was an idea yeah I mean you can't I don't know I mean I've, I have more ideas and I have time to pursue them yeah. so you've got to really like <laughs> pick the ideas that are worth because also you're investing so much time and yeah. money and effort into into making even a small project happen so I think you have to um, pick your pick your projects quite carefully. Mm -hmm. Not just go, oh, you know, I want to do something about X subject. I'm only going to do it now, um, in a week, 
and not really plan it or think about it. Yeah. Sorry, that's a really obvious comment to make. Well, no, I think that, no, but sometimes um, photographers, I mean, planning does really enrich a project, doesn't it? So. Yeah, I mean, if it can do, I think, if that's the kind of project you want it to be. Yeah, I suppose I it mean, depends on the I mean, there is completely an argument for just chucking yourself into the deep end. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've heard a lot of very convincing arguments from photographers for just thinking, oh, I want to go to, you know, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> I want to go to uh, Addis Ababa, so I'm just going to jump on a plane and then when I get there I'm going to see what, what I can shoot. And sometimes that really pays off, uh, but sometimes it's a disaster. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm kind of, I'm fairly risk averse as well in the sense that, again, it's this thing of the investment. I want the project to pay off if I'm going to put the time and, mm -hmm. and resources into it. Yeah, so I mean obviously some photographers don't plan, they just, they do, and that's fine um, but like I kind of briefly said I'm kind of risk averse and I tend to prefer to um, you know to make sure what I'm doing is it's going to pay off <laughs> not to say there's not experimentation there's not pretty much a constant feeling that what I'm doing might be a disaster uh, I think often that's actually the sign of the project that's promising is when you feel really uncomfortable about what you're doing and uncertain about it and um, you know, you're waking up every day thinking, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Yeah. Um, those are the ones that often seem to pay off. The ones where you're like, this is, yeah, I know what I'm doing, it's all under control, are yes. the ones that just often turn out quite uninteresting and uh, predictable. Yeah. Um, you know, you should always, I think you should always try and do something different, try and challenge yourself. Um, it's easy to become a master of one thing, just kind of plug on at it continuously. But if you're changing your approach every time, mm -hmm. it's, it's more of a challenge, it's more interesting. And do you think that's why um, you kind of evolved in this manner rather than, because you said that your expectation going into LCC was that um, you get into photojournalism. But obviously photojournalism is very much in the moment and it is throwing yourself in there and just capturing what's in front of you, whereas documentary is about the research, it's about taking your time, it's about exploring a, a subject in greater depth. Do you think that's why you've, you've got greater affinity with that, that form? Um, I think the, the thing of constantly changing my approach, um, it came out of the MA, yeah, I mean it was, it was kind of a realisation that you can't, if you document different subjects, it doesn't really make sense to apply the same approach to every single one. Because obviously, you know, if you're photographing maybe uh, quite similar issues, the same approach will work. Mm -hmm. But if you're interested in quite uh, different topics, then it won't. And I mean, also, if you're interested in photographing things that are quite um, difficult to perceive, you know, that aren't visually apparent or even visually obvious, um, you have to think quite creatively I think about how you want to show those things yeah. you can't just turn up with a camera and think right I'm just gonna take a picture of whatever I mean say you're doing a project about the internet obviously people have done that they've gone to server farms and um, photographed the kind of the visual hardware of the internet but I mean to me it's more interesting to to look at a, to look at a, um, a subject like that in a more uh, kind of I don't want to. I hate to use the word conceptual, but a kind of conceptual, abstract <laughs> way, and that often demands, uh, you know, a unique approach, a kind of conceptual approach. Um, yeah. 
So how did uh, Canvey Island come about in particular? So Canvey's kind of weird because um, this was, it was the first project I did for my MA and at the time I still harboured this thought that you know, a real photographer was a photojournalist and that's what I should try and be. <laughs> and so even though it kind of went against all my, uh, all these little voices in my head, I thought, right, I'm going to do what a journalist should do. I'm going to go and embed myself somewhere. I'm going to spend, you know, three weeks in this, or about two weeks, I think it was, I can't remember, two weeks in this community and I'm going to document it and kind of get under the skin of it and do it in quite a conventional way. So. Yeah, I mean, I was looking around for a subject and um, I happened to go on a day trip to Canvey with a friend and just thought, this place is really interesting. It's, it's very unlike anywhere I've been. Maybe this would be an interesting subject for a, a more in-depth project. Um, so, yeah, so I went back and, um, yeah, I spent two weeks on the island and already this interest in history kind of started to come out, even though I wasn't really aware of it at the time. Um, I found out, I mean, to, to give you some background, I guess would be good, a good start. Canvey is this um, reclaimed island in the Thames Estuary, which it was originally marshland. And in fact, it's, it's mentioned in, um, in Dickens. I think it's, it's the location that uh, Pip originally lives in Great Expectations, this kind of bleak, desolate marshland on the mm -hmm. Thames Estuary. So it wasn't really good for very much. Um, I think they grazed sheep on it. And, um, in the 17th century, they, they got Dutch engineers to come over and reclaim more of the island from the, from the Thames. Right, yeah. So it's, it's kind of strange because it's this island, but it's, a lot of it's below sea level, mm -hmm. which seems like a contradiction in terms. Um, so it has all these sea defences around it, and uh, the Dutch defences, sea defences, were there for like hundreds of years. And then finally in the 1950s, the, uh, the island flooded because uh, there was this huge storm surge in the North Sea and it, it you know, washed over these centuries-old defences. And subsequently, um, subsequently they built these new defences in the 70s that are like enormous. So it's now like a fortress. Uh, it's surrounded by this huge concrete wall designed to keep the sea out and prevent another flood. So, you know, it's a weird place because you're, you're on an island surrounded by water, but most of the time you can't see the water because there's a wall in the way. Yeah. Um, it's also strange because it's, I've heard it described as the Essex of Essex because it's, it's very, has a very Essex feel, a very East London feel. People, other people from Essex, most people in the UK, I guess this might be heard by international listeners, so I should probably explain. A lot of people in the UK are very rude about Essex, which is a county just outside London. And um, I heard, though, that people from Essex are rude about Canvey. Oh so right. it's very much the kind of their equivalent. Um, so it's, it's just got a very unique kind of character, very unique geography and a very interesting history. So all these things just seem like the right combination for a, for a story or yeah. for a kind of more in-depth look. And you, you've mentioned on your website that through the building of these walls, there's been quite a shift in in the town, and that it as once was a thriving sort of seaside town. So people went there on holiday, presumably, and it had all the kind of attractions of a seaside town. And that's since shifted because there's now this gap between the town and the sea. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so part of the reason it has this very East London character is uh, in the 
late Victorian period, I think, uh, it became like the main seaside resort for right. the east end of London because it was yeah. the closest beach, basically. So people jump on the train and it's relatively quick to go down to Canvey and then spend the day by the beach. So, you know, it became quite a uh, significant seaside resort yeah. right up until the 1950s. And really, um, this flood as well, this flood and also the kind of shift in people increasingly holidaying abroad pretty much destroyed it. Because yeah. Yeah. For a start, there's now this huge wall that separates the seafront from the sea, yeah. which is very strange. The beaches, there are still beaches and they're actually quite nice. But, uh, and I think, you know, if you go down there on a bank holiday, it does get busy. It is still as popular as, uh, as any seaside resort in the UK still is. But I think the, um, the kind of fashion for going overseas for holidays was a, probably a kind of death knell for, right, yeah. for the island as a seaside resort. But it still has a lot of these kind of characteristic uh, characteristics of the seaside resorts, you know, amusement arcades, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of seaside architecture. So it's a strange, uh, it's kind of clinging on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, as quite a few British seaside towns are, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so that, so it's always been there's always been this kind of it's always been a human construction really this island in terms of it was reclaimed and it was protected but now this kind of protection has is gone to a different level in the sense of it's 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 huge and it's really changed the kind of um, it's really changed the physical environment and the interactions of the people with the water. Because before yeah. there were these protections, but they were the Dutch ones, which were, I suppose, less, much less intrusive. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's strange. But it's always been man-made then, isn't, hasn't it? Which is interesting. I mean, if, I think if you took away... There was not always an island there, or a series of islands, actually. Um, but, yeah, I mean, really, Canvey is a construction. Yeah, it's um, interesting. But you could say that about lots of places. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's funny, I, one of the things I... I kind of talked briefly to some of the people about in the project is why why would you choose to live somewhere that's like always going to be at threat of flooding yeah, yeah. and I mean, one of the uh, the local priests pointed out that you know people live in all these places like japan that's a constantly a risk of huge disasters and you know it just almost doesn't factor into the the discussion you just you live where you live or you you live where you like to live um you know, I mean, the, the bizarre thing is, although Canvey is always going to be at risk of flooding, um, and it, it's below sea level, it's actually probably one of the safest places now in the UK from a flooding point of view, because these defences are so over mm. the top and so huge that um, I think really uh, the chances of it flooding again, it would have to be such an enormous event that uh, it would probably, yeah. I mean, probably damage London pretty badly yeah. if it yeah. flooded. So it's funny, it's, there's always going to be this lingering memory of this huge flood and this lingering risk. Well, and by these walls, it keeps that memory there, really, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Because they're a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's inescapable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, it's very unlikely it'll ever happen again. So it's, it's a very strange yeah. Uh, yeah. competition between memory and the future. But also, I guess, um, what's interesting is that people do kind of live on these um, risky, risky lands, you know, abroad like Japan or here on floodplains. But, it's all, but again, it's this kind of human, I think there's a sort of human feeling of domination over nature because we live on them, but then we build these huge walls 
So mm. it's kind of, all, you know, and we divide ourselves from, from nature to sort of protect ourselves. Yeah, I mean, the original reason for Canvey being reclaimed was economic, I think. Right, okay. Um, yeah. And there's kind of, I don't know, maybe there's an element of that now still. It's quite, I think a lot of people who live there commute to London, right. which is interesting. Um, and they just like to live by the water. I guess, and it's probably cheaper than living yeah. close to London. Yeah. It's kind of, it's pragmatism, I guess. Thinking about all these different themes, perhaps you could talk a little bit about your, the images that you took or, uh, and selected for the project, because, um, well, a couple of things. Well, first of all, do you find that with the kind of decline of the seaside town that there's evidence of that within the town, sort of like closures of shops? Because that's not really shown in your pictures, is it? You very much focus on people, the wall and some of the sea. Mm. And also, secondly, something I, for me when I was looking at the photos was this very powerful force of the water, the sea. Mm. seems very tranquil in the images. And the wall, this very dominating man-made structure, is the bit that really sort of stood out to me and felt quite jarring. Mm. And it's, I guess it's just, it's interesting because it's the water that was originally the very powerful force, but now to me it's these man-made structures that yeah. really stand out. And I'm wondering, is that, so, you photographed that quite purposefully? Um, what, yeah, well how, what, how did you go about it? That's quite an interesting reading. Um, I mean, the wall, I think originally I wanted to photograph more of what you're talking about, which is, you know, really the kind of, uh, the human and the economic face of Canvey. Yeah. But I think, uh, yeah, I was so almost overawed by this wall, which is <laughs> yeah. kind of an amazing, just on the, in an engineering sense, it's kind of amazing. It's like 14 miles of this, uh, I guess, probably about 20 foot high reinforced concrete and other sea defences. So it's kind of an amazing thing to see, uh, this whole island just ringed in concrete. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it kind of came in the end to dominate. It's also visually interesting. It is, and it's, yeah. It's kind of a, they were kind of, when I was putting the project together, two visual motifs. So one was the wall and the other was the sea and particularly the horizon. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, yeah, those two things just merged out more more kind of strongly really than a lot of the other things I photographed which looking back is actually kind of bad I shouldn't really have uh, in a way been prioritizing what looked good but essentially that's what I was doing in a way I was saying you know to myself I was saying you know these are the these are visually interesting um, but also I think maybe thematically interesting as well yeah I mean I think that the walls says a lot really I mean, mean, there is this competition, yeah. obviously, constantly. And it's also, although I say Canvey will never flood again, uh, it's a competition that ultimately the sea is going to win. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, amazing as this wall is, it's only about 30 years old, I think. And already it's covered in, you know, rust. And, um, you know, any, any kind of human construction is constantly has to be propped up. And, uh, you know, eventually, when we're all probably long gone, Canvey will be reclaimed by the sea. So although I say it's the safest place in the UK for a flooding perspective, um, that's only in the short term. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, they're also, they're quite visually, they visually almost reflect each other, you know, this they flat do, expanse yeah. of concrete. There's one image that I, was really struck me, which is when you're, um, you're looking down and you've got the wall sort of going straight through the middle mm. of the picture, I think, and the sea on one side and the town sort of, mm. the other. I don't know, I just, yeah, that was very aesthetically sort of pleasing and interesting, and, but also this wall really kind of stood out and jarred with me, yeah. 
And I mean, you know, they've made very little attempt to disguise it. I mean, how can you disguise it? <laughs> yeah. 14 miles of wall. It's, it's just what it is, you know. I guess um, some of the people who live there, I got the impression they just, you don't even notice it if you live there. But yeah, perhaps It becomes just yeah. part of the scenery. But as a visitor, it's, uh, how can you not? What was the relationship between the people and this wall? And I mean, did they see this as a, they saw this as a protective kind of barrier and therefore was it a good thing? Or did they think yeah. it kind of, had, had sort of taken away um, aesthetically um, from the town, which... I think generally the attitude was positive, because how could yeah. it not be? I mean, the alternative is your house gets flooded every, every time the sea level gets too high. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things was in the parish church, uh, they had this huge relief on the wall showing Canvey and the sea with uh, the seawall, and the seawall formed the base of a cross which was kind of an amazing image, like, you know, this, this wall is the kind of saviour of Canvey that yeah, protects yeah. it from this, this dangerous sea. I think, yeah, I mean, I got, I mean, I talked to one woman who, um, whose family had run this huge amusements centre called this casino in the 50s and 60s, and I got the impression a bit from her that there wasn't a sense of bitterness or anything about the wall kind of damaging canvas a seaside town but no. there was an awareness of that you know um, there was a sense that canvy couldn't be safe and be what it used to be you know right. seaside town with come the seaside. together yeah. yeah it's kind of competition between different um, different uh, different aims yeah how many people live there it's huge it's I think it's nearly 40,000 oh right and you know in like I think when the Dutch reclaimed it, it was like a few hundred. Yeah. It's just insane, this exploit. And it's still growing. Um, there's a big debate about whether to build houses on the, the remaining green areas. Yeah, because that was one sort of thing I wondered was, uh, you know, as well as the water being, uh, being a, a, a sort of flood threat, is, that, is it actually also that pe more and more people live there and living closer to the water or there's more to be destroyed as well? Now, yeah, definitely. There? I mean, yeah. uh, it's not just the stakes about the sea. are definitely increasing yeah, um, yeah. and the pressure on the island as well. Exactly, the other yeah. issue is if there ever was another flood, evacuating 40,000 people would just be a nightmare because there were like two bridges off the island and if you go there at rush hour it's, you know, the traffic is, you know, backed up almost across the whole island with people trying to get off. So the prospect of a flood would just be like, yeah. so you know the stakes are really high in the sense that it's not just about I mean, you know, 50 people, I think more than 50 people died in the flood in the 50s. So, you know, it is, it is a big deal. Yeah. And how did you seek out the people that you photographed? Um, I, wa I wandered around, I talked to people, I kind of, I did some research about uh, Canvey and its, um, its history. So, like, most of them were kind of fairly prominent in the community, right, which yeah. helped. I think there was... You know, they were, they were community figures, a lot of them, so I found that people were, maybe it reflects the kind of East End nature of the island, but some people were quite suspicious of me as a kind of outsider and a photographer. Some people were very interested and very kind of supportive. So, yeah, I mean, the people I chose in the end, um, they all seem to have quite an interesting slant on on the islands. Um, so like one of the guys whose nickname is Mr. Canvey is like this uh, uh, 
remember if he's a local councillor or a local MP. Sorry, it's been a while since I looked at the project. But he, um, he was involved very closely in building the flood wall. So I thought that was interesting to have someone who, who really was instrumental in this thing which just changed the island so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another person was, uh, she'd been an eight-year-old girl when the island flooded in the 50s. It was also, it was interesting to interview the parish priest because I think he was from, I think he told me he was from Trinidad originally. So that was interesting also to get the perspective of someone who was an outsider, yeah. even though he'd lived on the island for about 30 years, I think. It was interesting to talk to someone who'd come from outside, but also come from another island. So there was that kind of connection. Yeah. And who knew the island very intimately, knew the people there, and kind of get his perspective. He was the one who, who made this argument about people living in dangerous places right. but because they are just where they live and their home yeah. uh, which I thought was very um, accurate and very interesting. And have you retained any sort of contact with the people? Not really talked to anyone there for a while. I haven't actually been back. I keep meaning to go back. Uh, there was the anniversary of the flood was in January. It was the 60 year anniversary I think. Right. So I had some contact with a few of the people then. Uh, by just by email. No, it's it's funny how even working in your backyard, I you know, Canvey is a couple of hours away from here, and I still haven't been back. I really should go. <laughs> it's because uh, actually, it, although I was kind of, it was quite a stressful project because I was it was the first one for my MA, and I mm-hmm. thought there was a lot riding on it, which there wasn't. Um, you know, I really enjoyed it, and I, I met lots of really interesting people. So, and you know. Initially, I kind of, I have to admit, I went to Canvey slightly thinking, why would anyone live here? And by the end, I could kind of see why, because there, there are, there are <laughs> lots of things you could, negative things you could say about Canvey, but there are also a lot of really nice things. And, you know, in terms of stuff like community and, um, you know, people know each other, people look out for each other, even amongst 40,000 people, it's got a surprisingly cohesive feel. That's, yeah, it's a nice place. Not so many people would say that, though. <laughs> and so, in terms of defining the extent to which you explored uh, Canvey Island and, and the subject, was that dictated purely by um, time, by having like two weeks to do it, or in terms of what I photographed and what I looked at? Yeah. Um, so, giving giving the project uh, like a well, an end point. Yeah. I mean, I I knew. Obviously, I had that deadline hanging over me the whole time, but uh, whereas now now most of my projects don't have any deadlines, which is both great but also kind of uh, quite bad because sometimes it's good to have have the thought that I have yeah. to get this finished by whatever date. Um, yeah, I mean, I it's a small place, so two weeks in some ways is almost too much time. Um, you know, you could cover the whole island pretty easily in a few days and see most of what there was to see there. But it kind of gave me more time to revisit places, to go back and photograph the, the same thing but differently. And also to see things like, um, I don't know if this comes across in the photographs, but although the seascape is very tranquil, it also is very, uh, has lots of different kind of moods. I think, you know, places, the Thames Estuaries influence loads of artists and you can see why, because mm. it, you know, you can get up at six in the morning and go out and look at the estuary and then you can go back and have a coffee and come back out again an hour later. And it's the appearance of it's completely changed. It's quite amazing to watch it over two weeks. Um, so it was nice from that perspective to so be able to, to revisit the same places again yeah, and again. Yes, because you took sort of several pictures of the same thing. Mm. Is that, yeah. yeah, in some cases, yeah. 
I mean, it depends obviously on, you know, some things you only get one shot. Yeah, yeah. But uh, for things like the seawall and the, the estuary, that was, yeah, nice. Um, you say that your current projects vary in terms of having time frames and some that don't. How do you deal with those that don't? How do you know when <laughs> the time has come that uh, to wrap up that project and move on and, and say it's complete? I suppose that you usually end up imposing some sort of deadline on yourself. Um, the last thing I did, which is this reworking of uh, War Primer, I just I said to myself I just want to get it done as quickly as possible because I don't want to spend too much time on it. So I think I said to myself, you know, I'll spend a week on it, mm -hmm. and then I spent a few more days on it, just fixing little things, and then that was like, right, that's it, no more. I'm not gonna, you know, put any more time into this. Yeah, it's tricky, you know, and you sometimes you spend far more time on a project than you really should, and like the thing I'm working on at the moment's a bit like that. I kind of feel like uh, maybe. It wasn't such a good idea, maybe it hasn't been worth the time I've put into it. And the advantage of a deadline is you, you don't have that. You just you hit this point and you're like, right, what I've got yeah, is what I've yeah. got. And sometimes more time is needed, but sometimes it doesn't get any better with more time, does it? No, it can you get a lot worse. You just overthink it, yeah, and yeah. you just get so in it that you can't sort of see the wood through the trees. And, and yeah. you, can, um, you can get into the situation where you feel like, I've committed you know, a month of work to this thing, so I'm going to you know, see it through to the bitter end, whereas really what you ought to say is uh, actually I'm going to move on to something else. So yeah, deadlines are a mixed bag, but at the same time, you know, you can rush work because of a deadline and you can produce something that you're really not very happy yeah, with yeah. and uh, that's just as bad. Yeah, it's true. So. Yeah. so when you work on these projects that don't have a kind of um, a specific deadline, do you show other people your work to ask them whether you know, what their opinions are and whether it's kind of done. You know, do you have someone that you trust in sort of helping, helping shape your project in terms of yeah, image selection as well, editing, and also someone that can look at it and say, actually, I think you've got enough, or I think you're missing this, or? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, I don't tend to show people work and say, do you think it's done? Because I usually know when it's done, uh -huh. or when it's, when I say done, I mean when it's, it's near completion. Yeah. And often also, I think I wouldn't want to show people work until I had a feeling that it was nearly complete because right. I'm, I'm one of those people who's incredibly kind of uh, secretive almost about what I do and I like to, you know, keep it under wraps until I, I'm ready to show it to people. So, but I do have quite a few people that I show work to when it's reached the stage where I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's kind of in the last maybe 10% of a project. Um, and those tend to be fellow photographers, mm -hmm. Uh, a few people who don't really have any background in photography but come from kind of maybe related disciplines. Um, increasingly actually my dad because he's, uh, he's a filmmaker which is kind of um, has a lot of crossover yeah. but also yeah. it's different enough that he's not interested in any of the kind of things that photographers often get bogged down in like you know what camera did you use. Uh, he's just interested in what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. and how effectively it's being mm -hmm. said. So he's he's often a good person to. So he might tell you to. if he thinks you've got a missing image, or if he just thinks uh, that there's something that whatever uh, you know. If I explain what I'm trying to say, he'll tell me if he thinks I'm not, yeah. not saying yeah. it in the best way with the the work I'm doing. So you know, it's always good to canvas and kind of get a range of opinions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on the one hand, you know, all my projects, I don't do them for money because it's almost possible to make any money from them. I do them for myself. 
So in some respects, my feeling about the project's the ultimate. What I feel about it's the final line, you know, that's the yeah. thing that matters okay. most. But at the same time, I want people to be interested in the work. I want people to get something from it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't want to make the work intentionally complicated or, or difficult to understand. So, yeah, it's always a process of feedback and, um, and yeah, advice. And, yeah. And sometimes, you know, I will go, if a project's going really badly, <laughs> I'll go earlier to someone I trust and say, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. Should I keep going with this or should I, you know, pack it in and move on to the next one? So. And I suppose throughout your masters, that was one of the things you had a lot of that sort of feedback, didn't you? So it's, and getting used to that process of showing people work and being kind of critiqued on it. Because sometimes yeah. it's difficult, I think, exposing your images and having people give yeah, their um, thoughts, you know, something you've put your heart into and people are like, oh, I, don't, I don't like this or I don't like that image or... I'm used to that now. Yeah, I mean, does that come it, from your it, course as well, uh, having that? The course is great because all the other students, actually, in some ways, the tutors were great, but the other students were even better, I think, right. for that kind of feedback and critique. And quite a few of them are the people who still I, I go to and say, um, what do you think of this? Yeah. I don't know, I think if you're really confident about what you're doing, other people's opinions, they don't not matter, but when someone doesn't like your work, it's easier to tell yourself, well, it's one person. Yeah. If you're yeah. not confident about what you're doing and you know, you're know you looking for some kind of affirmation, yeah. Yeah. then when someone says they don't like it, it doesn't matter if they're someone important or just some random person you've plucked off the street, it can yeah. be really devastating. Yeah. yeah. So I think you know, it's really important to be confident about what you're doing, to know that what you're doing is, in some sense, right, um, before you show it to people. And in terms of the storytelling element of that, obviously that's, that feedback is an important part of evolving as a storyteller. Do you feel that outside of the, the university context and, and being surrounded by all those people on a daily basis, do you feel that you're still evolving as a storyteller and, and that you're and how do you go about doing that? I think, um, I feel like I'm evolving away from being a storyteller, right. weirdly. Uh, although I still do make things that are very narrative-driven, often for work, actually. You know, my recent projects just haven't had really any story in them. They've been so, uh, so much more kind of, again, I hate to use the C word, but conceptual. I hate to use that word because it's basically used as shorthand for a whole range of things that are more complicated than that. I mean, mm. you know, it's difficult to tell a story about something that's quite abstract because there is no story unless you want to look at you know the evolution of something over time um, if you want to say you know uh, talk about the way we use images um, there's no story there really uh, there may be a case studies but uh, these big topics don't really have narratives behind them um, or well, they have multiple narratives, right? Yeah, so or, yeah that's You pick true. one and you go with it, but it's not, it's, there are so many I mean, stories you could tell. The narrative with some subjects can actually get in the way of yeah. explaining the subject. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. It's, sometimes the narrative's vital, and sometimes it's better to just go straight in for the thing you, you want to talk about and say, this is what I'm interested in, this is what interests me about it. This is, I mean, it's almost more scientific. I don't consider my work scientific, I just mean it's, it's, less, uh, it's less about emoting and telling a story, it's more about profiling something, if that makes sense. Going on to how you explored 
can be island or going back to to that um, and what you actually produced as a as an end result of your time there and, and exploring that story there's quite a, a difference between what you produced uh, for the multimedia element of it and the actual body of work made up with uh, purely stills and I was just wondering what influenced your decision to kind of uh, take those stills and, and create a body of work uh, with those particular images and what influenced what went into the multimedia presentation and you know secondly how did you explore that multimedia element how did you find it um, um, well it was the first multimedia I ever made it was again there was this course and I said to myself I'd like to I'd like to um, to do something I haven't done before and I tried to do it with each project on the course and actually with each project since is to do something a bit different um, so I made the multimedia first and I then made a book afterwards which is kind of which is interesting actually yeah because I mean obviously you make very different selections like in multimedia um, an image that's quite inconsequential and that wouldn't appear in a book might appear but only for like two seconds you, know, you use a lot more images in the multimedia because of the pace it's very different um, as a way of kind of communicating it's interesting it's interesting again actually talking about you going to my dad for advice because multimedia is obviously a lot closer to to film mm. than photography um, and that was really interesting talking to him about pacing and how you kind of connect audio and pictures and yep. how they mirror each other or how they go away from each other and go along different paths so um, yeah it was an interesting it was a new experience and uh you know, I made a huge number of mistakes in the process, but um, I enjoyed it. I just, it's slightly, slightly traumatic at the time doing it because it was, it was so much a baptism of fire. Um, whereas making the book afterwards was something I was much more comfortable with, so um, that wasn't, uh, wasn't so bad to do. It was just, um, I mean, in some ways that's actually a bad thing. It was more by the numbers, you know constructing a narrative in a book form it's straight pretty straightforward yeah the mistakes you said you made lots of mistakes along the way what were they <laughs> um bad audio for one i just i didn't have a clue about audio recording uh i'd have shot a lot more i think if i'd really known i mean multimedia the pacing is just so different you know you go through photographs at such different rates um, obviously you're, con you're controlling how long people view photographs for but you don't want to hang a photograph up on the screen for kind of you know, a long time like five seconds doesn't sound like very long but in, in a multimedia it is it obviously multimedia suits a certain type of photography and it doesn't really suit other types and for a narrative you know for a kind of a traditional documentary subject uh, it works brilliantly because yeah. mm. you can really control how people go through that subject yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're a control freak like I am a bit it's, it's, quite, it's quite a nice way to work but it also limits what your audience can definitely take definitely se sequences work. your work that's a really good point isn't it yeah, yeah I mean really like yeah. on a very macro level I mean, yeah. you, you say to someone you're going to look at this picture for two seconds and then we're going on to the next yeah. one yeah. but that can be a disadvantage in some work um, particularly more complicated work because you can't assume that you understand the work 
maybe even as well as the person, the viewer. You know, so if you say you're only going to look at this for two seconds, that might mean you and also the viewer potentially miss something mm-hmm. quite interesting, some small detail that maybe you haven't noticed, yep. but your viewer will. I mean, I only realised later how, um, how many, you know, just the range of ways someone can interpret a photo. Mm-hmm. You show the same photo to like 10 different yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the different readings are incredible, but they take time to emerge. So if you're just blasting through images one after another, um, often people don't get the opportunity to really notice these little things. And I think often these small things are really defining the project. They're, re- they're the thing that interests me more and more. Mm-hmm. Isn't the big, uh, the big immediately noticeable aspect of the photo. It's the tiny thing that you only notice you know, when you've looked at the picture for a minute or two minutes. So yeah, and that, that requires reflection, yeah. which mm. you're, not, you're not allowed, you're not afforded no, that opportunity no. with, with multimedia. But I suppose the thing is to combine the, the video, the still images, the text, isn't it? And that sort of combination allows for both. Mm. Definitely. And um, well, I mean, tries mul- to anyway. multimedia fits like a definite niche uh, at the moment in terms of it's, it's quick, you can it's easy, you know, just watch it. Um, it pushes a lot of content on people very quickly. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about people have less and less time for uh, sitting down with, you know, a photo essay or whatever, or an essay, multimedia is fantastic because you can just really, like, just cram all yeah. this information into a person. A bit like what we were saying about podcasts before recording the... Yeah, yeah, we were talking about how, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, how podcasts are great because, you know, people don't have time maybe to read a, a long interview, but they do have time to listen to one. Yeah while they do something else. Yeah, yeah. And multimedia is kind of similar, but there are definite downsides as well. So yeah, it does kind of pander to that consumption of imagery. Definitely. Um, where you have that two second attention span yeah. and, and then you move on to the next image and so on and so forth within a gallery context. But it can also enrich the experience by having people talking and giving kind of contextualizing images. Mm. You know, having narration over the top can really enrich an image then, can't it? Because it can sort of, it gives yeah. more depth to it in some ways. I think it's it's case by case thing. Yeah, it is. I've seen some it's amazing multimedia pieces that didn't simplify their subjects, uh, really were very in-depth, very clever. Mm. I've also seen ones that, and I mean this is a problem in journalism, in photojournalism in general, that massively simplify, um, yeah, that don't give you time to really think and about the subject. just about image saturation. Yeah, and yeah. Pati- that particular kind of image, yeah, like a very, um, an image that hits you in the gut straight yeah. away, but then on closer inspection, there's not really anything there. And I think, just to slightly sidestep into a bit of a rant, um, this is a big problem in photojournalism, has been for a long time and still is, that it's still a, a field dominated by these types of images that, um, that hit you, that have an immediate impact. And that sell. And uh, that sell, yeah. and that's why they sell. Yeah. But in the longer term, even not even in a very long term, in, in the case of looking at them for a few minutes, often uh, they don't really tell you anything, they don't really um, inform or drive forward an argument about a subject. They're just um, visceral and, I mean, they're just kind of pleasurable, basically. They can sometimes work, depending on the type of image you're talking about, but to desensitise almost, isn't it? We see so many of these images, you know, conflict, famine, etc. Yeah, it works but also almost they're, um, they're often very beautiful, you know, and there's this whole, obviously, whole debate. Yeah. Let's yeah, not go, even debate. go there yeah, but I agree. about um, yeah. beauty and suffering. But, I mean, 
I think even in things that aren't showing people suffering, um, you know, photography is a visual medium, so obviously people expect it to be beautiful. But uh, often that's, that's almost as... That's, it can be damaging, basically, is what I'm saying. It can be a problem. It's a bit like what you said actually earlier um, when we were talking about your, the images you chose for Canvey Island, that some of them have turned out to be quite aesthetically pleasing. Haven't they with the wall and the sea? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah my choices yeah. definitely were shaped by the yeah, pictures aesthetics, that I liked. Yeah, and, and a little bit more arty in that way. And more, more than the pictures that necessarily transmitted the most interesting, interesting information or which told the story best. Yeah. There are images there that I look at and think, I just wanted to shoehorn this picture in. Um, I think we've all done that. We've all been in that situation as photographers where you have an image that you really want to use but you can't see how. Um, someone I know who's an editor, film editor, I think, uh, says that editing is basically finding a way to use all your best shots. Um, and yeah, we've all done it at the cost of what we're trying to say, I think. Do you think you'll explore, continue to explore multimedia with uh, the projects that you do in the future? Again, I guess it really just depends on the project. Nothing at the moment that's on my horizon right. fits it. Um, but yeah, definitely, I could, I could see myself. And I think, uh, I mean, I do them for work sometimes, for clients, I sometimes make little multimedia pieces. And um, yeah, I mean, that's an environment where it's really good. Like, I do a lot of work for museums, and uh, they often want to explain these really complicated processes they use for different things. And even to do a photo essay, you're talking about so many pictures and so much text to try and explain this thing. And in like two or three minutes, you can uh, make a little multimedia piece which explains this thing really coherently, yeah. quickly, uh, that you know even a child can watch it and understand uh, a very complicated process. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do still use them, but I'm not, I'm not like looking for a subject to, to make a multimedia about. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for the subject, and then I'll decide what fits it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yep. What do you do for your work? So, yeah, I mean, I make most of my money from photography, which is great. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's not very much money. Right, yeah. So it's, um, it's brilliant to do what you like doing for a living. Everyone knows that. Um, but it's also tough, and there is this competition always between financial concerns and doing the work you want to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky, you know, in the sense that I do a lot of work for places that I really like, and my, you know, museums. So you're doing photography for them? Yeah, mm. that's one of the things I do. And uh, that's fantastic because, you know, I love being in these places. Mm -hmm. You know, the work often isn't that far removed from stuff I do for myself. Yeah. So, you know, they're amazing um, places to work. And increasingly writing about photography. Um, again, that's really nice because it's something I do anyway and, you know, it's, it's pleasurable to do it. And bizarrely, I've discovered it seems almost easier. It's such a struggle as a photographer to make any money from your personal work. Um, I guess because there are so many of us. Yeah. Whereas writing, it's not doesn't feel like such a saturated area. There are fewer. Writing about um, photography. Yeah, just yeah. I guess writing about photography. I don't really write about anything else. No. Because I don't know about anything else. It's tough to make a living. I mean. I don't really know what advice to give, no, other than you just have to be very dogged and... And would you say that you need to kind of pursue quite a few things at once? I think the more, yeah, I mean the more eggs you have in, yeah. 
in uh, more, more baskets you have, I can't remember what the, the phrase is, um, <laughs> the more you spread yourself, that can make it more exhausting and yeah. more difficult because you don't want to appear like a kind of jack of all trades who will just take any job going. But in effect, that's what I think most of us would do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to have different kind of portfolios of different types of work and um, try and keep them fairly separate. It's, you just have to really stick at it. And I mean, you, there's nothing wrong with not making a living from photography and saying to yourself, you know, I'm just going to get a job that pays the bills. Yeah. Um, in some ways, I look at people I know who are um, photographers and who are making their living from photography and I think we're mad. You know, what the hell are we doing? Um, this is just so much work, you know, for often for relatively little money or no money. Um, I can't decide if it's amazing that any of us are able to actually make a living from photography or that it's scary. But you know, if you, yeah, if you enjoy it and if, it, um, if you've got a knack for it, then you'll survive eventually. <laughs> it's definitely a slow process. Though. Yeah. And how did you go about finding your clients? Oh, send a lot of emails, make a lot of phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to hate, you know, networking. I still do hate networking, but you know, hobnobbing with people and kind of <coughs> cornering people and trying to persuade them to look at your work. But I just realised you kind of have to do that. Um, just be clever. I mean, just you know, if you know someone who's going to work for somewhere that you'd like to work for. Um, keep an eye on them, you know, try and get them to introduce you to someone there. I mean, we supposedly live in this very egalitarian society where everyone's picked based on their skills, yada, yada, yada. But really, uh, it's amazing how much work is dictated by who you know and stuff like that. It's terrible and I hate it. But at the same time, I I definitely benefited from it. Mm. Um, Your kind of contacts, connections are so so important. Um, I know people who you know aren't even particularly good photographers but they, they have a knack for getting to know people and staying in touch with them and forming those connections which um, lead to work. So yeah just be clever, just, just keep your eye on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere you see an opportunity, even however unlikely it seems to be, uh, explore it. But the same as doing personal work, you know, just different outcome. Mm. But I assume you've been very selective in who you've actually approached because you've oh, thought yeah. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in these areas like museums and the like so I'm going to target. Yeah of course and you look at what your strengths are, you play to what you can do. So you know I look and I, I mean like for example in terms of museums, you know the big museums all have their own in-house photographers, mm-hmm. small ones can't afford photographers. So I tend to approach museums that are somewhere in between for example. Um, yeah, you definitely, you, this is what I mean about being clever, you know, you don't want to waste your time going after people who definitely aren't going to give you any work. Yeah. Um, you just have to, to think about who's likely to employ you and why they're likely to employ you. And uh, yeah, and quantity helps as well. <laughs> just email everyone you think. I mean emails, I actually often send letters because I find emails are so easy to delete. Um, I think there's a weird psychological burden about crunching up a nicely printed oh, letter and chucking it in the bin. <laughs> just takes slightly more effort to Very do. Interesting, yeah. So, and then usually I'll email like a couple of weeks later and say, you know, did you get my letter? Yeah. Blah blah blah. 
And, um, Do you think that's been effective? Almost always get a response, mm. even if it's, you know, we'll put your name on our list, which yeah. basically means no. Um, you almost always get some kind of feedback. So, um, yeah, you know. I mean, also take the time, if you're going to contact someone and try and get work, find out exactly who you need to contact. Don't just send off some kind of stock yeah. email, which sounds so obvious, but so many people do that. Yeah. Um, you know, do some kind of detective work. Stuff like LinkedIn is amazing for this, because like, obviously depending on what area you're interested in working, and everyone is on it. So it's quite easy to find, at the very least, a name. Yeah. And then from there, figure out the form, email address for an organisation. I think there's actually a website that lists all these form email addresses, so you know it's always name.name at bbc.co.uk. I think there's a website that has just a list of this for every big organisation, and it's amazingly useful. (laughs) Find someone's name, put it in the form email, email them. So, yeah, it's just, um, it's a lot of work, but so is anything, any job is. And do you think the fact that you're exploring writing and uh, reviewing exhibitions and the likes in, in such depth, that that's helping you gain exposure and, and um, helping you somehow network with other photographers because you're getting recognition for that and people are reading it and um, yeah. respecting y- your opinions. It's weird. Um, it's helping and not helping right. in different ways. I mean, it does help, yeah, people, people do notice but they don't always notice for the right reasons. Right. Some people are more interested in, uh, you know, kind of bombastic arguments, starting fights. I try and avoid starting fights with photographers unless I think it's really worth doing. Um, but some people, that's all they do. And uh, it's potentially easy to get labelled as someone who just goes out to cause trouble. It's, yeah, it's, it's really nice. I mean, the writing is all, all personal, basically. It's all stuff I... I guess with the reviews, more, more I'm doing that for a conscious audience, but mm-hmm. the other writing is, is for me mainly. So it's always nice when people recognise stuff you've done for, your, for yourself and say, yeah, good work. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, in relative terms, it's still very small, you know. But then again, I guess, again, like we keep saying, the photography community is quite small in some ways. And how have you found... Uh, Twitter and other social media <laughs> um, platforms. Twitter's been really good, actually. I'm not very canny on social media, but it's been a really good way to, to kind of talk to people. I mean, again, this email and letter thing. I think if you tweet someone, obviously it depends on their profile, because it's a kind of public thing. Mm. People are much more likely to respond yeah. than with an email, which would just get deleted. Yeah. Um, you know, and they'll respond quicker. And... Yeah, so it's a good way to get in touch with people who are often quite untouchable and, you know, the kind of person who if you phoned up to ask for a meeting or an interview or something, you'd probably never get past some kind of secretary or, or kind of, you know, lackey uh, who's been put there to keep you apart. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter's great because you can you just bypass that world and go straight to the source of whatever you want. So, um, admittedly, there's also a lot of crap on there. Uh, I think you have to... It's only lately that I've got kind of more careful about pruning down so, you know, you, yeah. you get useful information. Because, I mean, Twitter can be a source of really useful, useful information, yeah. kind of up-to-date information. But it can also just be, you know, 200 people telling you about their lunch. Um, 
So think about it, you know, yeah. like anything. Yeah. And uh, I don't really use, I mean, I don't know, social media, Facebook, it's just, I, don't, I mean, I just use it to spam my friends. Um, <laughs> Do you use Flickr, Instagram? I used to use Flickr. I kind of got sick of it. Mm -hmm. And I used it really before I had a proper website. Yeah. Instagram? Um, someone just to dump stuff. No. No. No, I don't know. I've never really got the, never really got the appeal of Instagram. Not to say there aren't people doing really nice work on it. But I just, I don't ever take pictures with my phone I'd want publicly viewable. Right. Or very rarely, you know. Well, it's a different, but it's a different mindset, isn't it? You, you, I suppose you could start doing that, but it's just not how you view your your camera phone. Um, no, I think again, you know, uh, I know people have done projects that were designed specifically to appear on Instagram. So they looked at Instagram as a platform and yeah. said, "How does this work? Yeah. What would fit this?" And then they went out and shot projects that was going to appear on Instagram. Sometimes in the process of shooting it, sometimes shortly afterwards. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And again, if I had a project that was like designed for it, yeah. Um, I mean, I thought for a while of doing something looking at. Uh, I'm interested in the whole analog um, use of kind of analog filters and stuff like that, mm -hmm. nostalgia. I thought for a while of doing something looking at Instagram in relation to uh, very early photographs and kind of tracing some kind of connection between the two. But this is one of those projects which sat around, you know, as an idea for a while and then by the time I got around to it I kind of thought, I don't think this is a, a fully fledged project. So but hey, it's it's still there, so if someone wants to steal <laughs> it and, you know, run with it, be my guest. <laughs> and um I know you've said that you're a fairly secretive person in terms of what you're working on, but Sorry, that makes me sound very kind of suspicious and uh, dodgy. But are you willing to share anything about what you're currently working on? Um, I'm just finishing off a project which is kind of, uh, it's not really a big project. It's more, it's even more a personal project than the other personal projects, which is, um, I found this uh, alphabet book kind of Pictionary my mother made me when I was about two, which is, so it's a page with a letter on each page and then a few pictures, mm -hmm. photographs or some drawings you know, like to teach you how to learn the alphabet, A is for Apple and stuff like that. And um, it kind of interested me because it was like, it, you know, I'm old enough to, that it effectively predated the internet, so these things would cut out books and magazines. Yeah. My mum's an artist, so I should say collagist, so it also reflects her, her personal work. And um, I thought, oh, well, you know, this is a kind of, sometimes you do little projects in between big projects just to kind of, I don't know, keep your eye in or keep yourself amused. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe this is a small project to do until I do the next big one. And so what I'm doing is um, adding new pages to it and updating it by adding photographs from the internet. Um, I'm going through a dictionary because I always meant to read the dictionary because someone told me that was useful if you're a writer. And um, kind of identifying words that interest me in any way, just trigger any kind of reaction. And then Google image searching them and similarly just picking out photographs that trigger some kind of response and then adding them to these pages. So functionally it looks like the same book, just massively expanded. So mm -hmm. where there was one page before that's now like eight. Yeah. Um, but then when you inspect the pictures, they range from, you know, uh, pictures of kind of um, 
I don't know, technology, uh, war, science, arts, everything, you know. Part of the idea is to look at, um, you know, we hear this endless uh, refrain that we live in a world that's kind of saturated with photographs, and I don't know how true this is, I find it a bit suspicious as a claim, but I was kind of interested to look at it will look at image saturation. It's basically, it's become this book that's several hundred pages long and still growing, which is just saturated with images, all of them out of context, with no explanation. Um, and it's interesting the relationships they begin to form to each other. They're pasted in quite randomly. Um, the relationships that start to form, the way uh, they all seem to kind of be reduced to about the same level of significance by the way they're put next to each other. So a terrible image next to a boring image, and they kind of level out somehow in a strange way and both become quite boring. <laughs> it's, it's not a project I think that will ever really get seriously published or shown anywhere, because um, that was never the point. It's more just something for me to do it's kind of cathartic yeah. and, uh, but again it taps into your interests of sort of memory and history and doesn't it yeah. With, and very personal yeah and, and it's quite mean, an everyday object it's uh, it also makes you realize it's interesting how few images you can really retain in your head yeah um, you know I look back through it and I've forgotten 95% of the photographs yeah, yeah. Um, you know we always talk about memory being like a photograph or vice versa but actually our ability to retain images in our heads is very low, mm. you know. Um, if you think of the big events like you know Vietnam War, I mean, I've seen probably thousands of pictures from the Vietnam War, but I can probably only remember about five or six mm. really significant ones. So um, it's it's still evolving, it's still emerging um, as a project, and and also part of the idea is uh, once it's finished, it will never be finished because I endlessly pictures endlessly build up in my hard drive that I've pilfered from various places or, or saved because they interest me and I yeah. think I might come back to them. Yeah. And part of the idea was to be able to add these to something. So over the years this book will continue to grow. So it's eight pages per letter now which is like I guess nearly 300 pages altogether. But um, those will continue to grow and it could become bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, <laughs> depending on how long I can bother to keep up with it. <laughs> so, you know, this is what I mean, you know, this is a project I was working on thinking um, maybe this is a complete waste of time. But um, I've tried to trick myself into thinking that even if it is of no interest to anyone else, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, which I think is important, definitely, yeah, as well. Is there anywhere that people can look on the web to find your work and your writings? Um, well, they're all on my website, which is, this is an opportunity for me to do a plug. Yeah, nice. yeah. cool. Uh, it's just www.lewisbush.com. Um, from there, you can find everything else. Okay. Is there anybody else who's on your horizon that you've kind of stumbled upon recently who is working on documenting a local story that you can recommend? Um, I mean, the obvious person who comes to mind just because he's on everyone's radar at the moment is Jim Mortram. Yeah, I mean, he's everywhere, which is great because his work's really... I'm a big cynic about photography and its ability to affect change and uh, get people to change their attitudes towards things, but actually his work often manages to achieve that, which I think is pretty amazing. 
Um, I'm just trying to think, see if I can think of someone who's a bit less, less well-known. Uh, I think I might just stick with him for now. I mean, a few of my friends are working on local projects about various things, but uh, I don't know if any of them are at the stage yet where they'd like me to <laughs> say, yeah, this person's working on X subject, go and check them out. Right, yeah. They're all quite kind of early stages. Yeah. Yeah. Can you recommend a, an exhibition or a book that you have read or seen recently that sort of inspired you? And what's on your next list of something to go and see or read? Does it have to be one that's currently...? No, just if you've maybe come oh. across it recently. Okay, um, well the best exhibition I've seen definitely this year, probably for several years, was the uh, Karl Blosfels exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery. Oh, right, and yeah. I didn't know his work at all before and I kind of went just because I thought... I think actually I read that Walter Benjamin uh, really admired his work and I thought well that's, that sounds like quite a good recommendation, I'll go and check it out. And it just completely um, blinded me. It was amazing. Um, so that was Karl Blossfeld. Okay. He was a photographer working in the 19, early, 19, early 20th century, late 19th century, who took all these incredibly meticulous pictures of plants. And uh, he had this belief that human architecture was inspired by the natural world. Mm -hmm. So he engaged in this really obsessive project to try and uh, prove this, basically, through photographs. And uh, he's been hugely influential. I mean, like, you look at people like the Beckers, uh, their work is just such an obvious uh, hand-me-down from right. Lost Felt. Okay. But they're just beautiful photographs. So there's someone to go and Google. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're documentary, but they're also just stunningly mm -hmm. beautiful. So, And uh, in terms of a current show, um, and in a weird kind of way, I'm quite looking forward to the Taylor Wesley Prize. Oh, yeah. Which is a funny admission because, I mean, like a lot of people, I'm a bit skeptical about it. It's imp I think it's kind of overly important. Right. It's seen as being more important than maybe it should be. Um, but it's always interesting to see what the kind of prevailing yeah, definitely. attitude yeah. is about something like portraiture and what people think is, is good portraiture yeah. at the moment. And also to see how it changes yeah. or doesn't change. Yeah, I always enjoyed that exhibition as well, yeah. Okay, well, links to all these um, exhibitions and artists and likes and your photographers well. and yeah. uh, Lewis's website will be in the show notes. Um, but I think that's us. That'll, we'll end it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks Thank you very much. Interesting. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the first podcast from Documentary Photography Review with me, Rebecca Enderby, and my colleague, Chris King. We had the pleasure of talking with Lewis Bush, exploring his multimedia approach to documenting Canvey Island. To find out more about Lewis's work, visit his website at www.lewisbush.com. Please do also check out Documentary Photography Review at www.documentaryphotoreview.com, where you can get access to the full interview and show notes, and there are links to the people and places referred to. There's also more information on Lewis and other photographers featured on the site. Don't forget to subscribe to iTunes to receive future episodes every two weeks. We have some great photographers lined up. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider writing a review on iTunes and spreading the word via social media. Thanks again. <laughs>